Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Ivory. I'm your host. Today, how one woman tries to shed the burden of the Holocaust. The children of Holocaust survivors face a unique set of challenges. The fact that they exist at all seems like a miracle. After all, their parents weren't supposed to live, much less procreate. Their children often feel enormous responsibility to bring their parents joy, to spare them pain, to live their lives fully since their parents couldn't. On today's podcast, we meet a woman who grew up saddled with those kinds of expectations. How she ultimately overcame them may surprise you. Mark Betancourt brings us her story. My friend Lynn used to keep a log of everything that made her feel joyful. It was an actual Excel spreadsheet where she would list things like the smell of her neighbor's jasmine bush, Spanish classical guitar music, or homemade whipped cream. Lynn has long, wavy brown hair and always seems to be wearing comfy clothes, kind of like a wood elf transplanted to Los Angeles. She and her husband, Stephen, live in a little bungalow in West Hollywood. They love to throw theme parties for their close friends where people make up songs and play games. That's ultimately what's really important to me, the laughter and the connection with other people. And that is antithetical to where I come from. Where Lynn comes from is all about where her father comes from. And in a lot of ways, he's why she needed that spreadsheet. Not just to keep track of joy, but to learn how to really let herself feel it. Lynn's dad grew up in a Jewish family in Vienna, Austria. The night of his bar mitzvah in 1938, Nazi paramilitary groups coursed through the city, burning synagogues and smashing the windows of Jewish homes and businesses. It was the night known as Kristallnacht, and it's generally considered the first night of the Holocaust. In the following year, Lynn's dad managed to escape Austria through the British Kinder Transport Program, which evacuated Jewish kids from Nazi territory in the months before the war. He was separated from his parents and lost all contact with them. Lynn's grandfather disappeared and went into hiding. He ended up surviving the war, but her grandmother was captured in Vienna, and she later died in Auschwitz. When Lynn was a kid, she didn't know any of this. Because it was never talked about in our house. And yet I was completely steeped in it my entire life. Lynn's dad didn't tell her he was a survivor until she was a senior in college. He also told her he'd wanted to have kids in the first place so that he wouldn't kill himself. That was pretty hard to hear, but it made a strange kind of sense. Her whole life, Lynn's family had been miserable, as if a giant invisible weight had been pressing down on them. Though she didn't know what that weight was, Lynn kind of intuited that it made her parents fragile. From the time she was a little girl, she'd thought of it as her job to take care of them, rather than the other way around. She'd shared everything with her dad. Books she read, places she went, food she tried. It was almost like she saw herself as a surrogate for him, like he wouldn't experience life unless she helped him. Here's an example. I was nine years old, and they introduced in our elementary school that you could learn how to play an instrument. And I said, I am going to learn to play the violin. Not because I particularly wanted to play the violin, but I went home and I was like, Dad, I want to learn how to play the violin. Oh my God, he was so happy. He wanted to learn to play the violin? Oh, that's wonderful. That's marvelous. That's great. And then I played the violin for six years. I hated it. Why do you think he was thrilled? I assume is because at some point he wanted to learn how to play the violin. It's the only thing I can think of, you know. But not all the problems in Lynn's family were so benign. Her mother spent most of her time in bed with what Lynn calls a deliberate addiction to prescription pills. She burned food she was cooking, she totaled every one of the family cars, and she acted helpless unless Lynn was there to hold her hand. Lynn's dad cheated on her mom for years. They fought. They relied on Lynn in ways that aren't appropriate for kids, like for counseling on how to fix their marriage. 
Lynn even tagged along on dates with her father and his mistresses, and she was expected not to rat on him. It was pretty dysfunctional. But no one ever confronted her dad about this stuff, or held him responsible for it. When Lynn's dad told her about his past, she finally understood why. Because he's a Holocaust survivor. Because your life was always so much worse than mine will ever be. Being angry at her dad or wanting him to change was not an option. So at first, she tried to just accept things the way they were. She looked for ways to understand her own relationship with the Holocaust. She interviewed other children of survivors. She went to counselors who specialized in treating children of survivors. She joined support groups for children of survivors. She even helped create an off-Broadway musical called Children Of. She tried every kind of therapy, including alternative options like a spiritual healer. But as hard as she tried, none of it helped. It wasn't enough to know that her family's problems came largely from her dad's Holocaust experience. The truth was that Lynn's problems were coming from her parents. That's when Lynn realized that she needed to do what was right for her. She gathered her family together and told them she was done, that she couldn't be responsible for them anymore. Basically, that she needed to break up with them. Lynn's parents acted like they had no idea why she was upset. They insisted the family was totally normal. So she followed through. She cut off all contact with them. I remember thinking, like, okay, well, that phase of my life is over. Like, everything leading up to that point is now history. It felt very much like everything in my world had just come crashing down. It was a rough time. She felt isolated and alone, and she wasn't sure if she'd done the right thing. By this point, she had moved to Los Angeles, where she heard about another support group, something she hadn't tried before. It was called the German-Jewish Dialogue, and it brought together the children of Holocaust survivors with the children of Nazis and other non-Jewish Germans. It seemed like a group that was all about moving forward, so Lynn went. It was in this musty, like, 80-year-old, 90-year-old building, and um, there was a meeting room on the ground floor, and there was a circle of chairs around it, and there were, like, 20 participants. They went around the circle, and everybody got to choose a theme, something to discuss as a group. People were suggesting really general, innocuous themes, like what is the German culture like now as opposed to during the war? And then it was Lynn's turn. She told the group about her struggles with her family and how she'd cut ties with them because she felt she had to. The question she wanted to ask the other group members was when and how do you confront your parents for what they've done to you? And pretty much unanimously, the Jews in the room were just... Not, not only were they not supportive or understanding, but they were incredibly judgmental about what it is that I've done. There were only two people at the meeting whose parents had fought on the German side of the war. One of them was an Austrian-born woman named Inga. As unlikely as it seems, Inga's story has some striking parallels with Lynn's. The first time I knew that something was different about my family, uh, we were in a five-story walk-up in Washington Heights in New York. It was 1958, and Inga was four years old. Her family had just arrived from Austria, and they had moved into a building where most of the other kids were Jewish. One day, you know, I was hanging out in the stairwell, which is where the kids played, and there were some boys above me who started spitting on me and calling me a Nazi. I asked my parents, you know, what that means, and they wouldn't talk about it. It's none of your business. Around the time that Lynn's dad was fleeing Austria, 
Inga's dad, who was 19, had just been drafted into the German army. Her mom was 16, and like a lot of other teenagers in Vienna, she joined the National Kids Organization that supported the Nazis, Hitler Youth. My mother, um, as a teenager, you know, she wants what every teenager wants. She wants to be cool, she wants to be included, she wants to be part of something, she wants to make a difference. As far as Inga knows, her mother was never directly involved in the atrocities the Nazis committed. But she had done her small part to support Hitler, and that left its mark on her after the war. The sense that she left was it was the most shocking, disappointing experience of her life. You know, that she that something with so much promise and so much hope had become so ugly and so awful, and then plus we lost the war. Not just we were wrong, but we were like really wrong. As a kid, Inga knew as little about her parents' past as Lynn did about her dad's. But unlike Lynn's family, Inga's family didn't suffer quietly. They raged. My mother was a manic depressive. And at the bottom of the cycle, she was mean as all get out. She was as mean as a snake. And my father, conversely, was really stilted emotionally. He wasn't happy with himself. He wasn't happy with her. He wasn't happy with us. But when he got fed up, that's when he would get violent. Both of Inga's parents beat her and her sisters. She remembers being seven years old and bleeding so much from her face after her father assaulted her that she had to stand on a stool in the bathroom so the blood could run into the sink. When they weren't hitting her, they were neglecting her, sending her to school without lunch or books. Even as a little kid, she got angry and fought back, but she ran into an obstacle that was similar to the one Lynn found in her family. When I confronted them with things... The victim card that they played was what they'd been through was horrific. And that if I didn't understand how horrible it was, I had no right to say anything because I wasn't there. But for Inga, just like for Lynn, knowing her parents had been through a traumatic time didn't make it easier to live with them. When she was 14, she started running away. The police would bring her home and she would run away again, over and over, until she was finally put into the foster care system. She didn't look back. I was pretty damn angry for the way I'd been treated. One of my earliest memories of all this, like, you can't make me be like you. You cannot make me be like you. I would never treat my child the way you're treating me. If I hadn't pushed back against that nuttiness as hard as I had, then I would probably would have succumbed to it a great deal more. My anger saved my life. Inga grew up, and like Lynn, she moved to Los Angeles. She got married, she had children of her own, she had some stability in her life. And it was at that point that she felt ready to get back in touch with her parents. I hadn't talked to them in years. I just called them up. I said, hi, it's me. Oh, we were wondering, where you, we were, we were wondering when you were going to call. Well, I missed you too. <laughs> it was after that, she says, that she was able to make a kind of peace with them. I don't know if it was so much a direct apology as, you know, that they were really happy that I was back together with them again and and I you know had these two beautiful kids and they were great grandparents you know for as screwed up parents as my parents were they were great grandparents it was nice I wish they'd been that nice to me but that they could do it at all I was very proud of that this was the story Inga shared with the group at the German Jewish Dialogue and for Lynn it was a revelation like her, Inga had stood up to her parents. She'd held them responsible for what they'd done. But it hadn't torn her family apart forever, and Inga didn't seem burdened by guilt. 
It gave Lynn some hope that maybe she was on the right track, that maybe what she had done wasn't all that terrible after all. She was shocked to find that hope coming from Inga, whose parents were supposed to be polar opposites of Lynn's. That was incredibly eye-opening to me, to, to think that I was not identifying so much with the children of survivors, but to hear the daughter of a Nazi share her experience, that blew me away. Inga only came to that first meeting, and she never came again. Lynn went for a few more weeks, but she wasn't getting much out of it. She couldn't connect with the other children of survivors, and she was still feeling the pain of pushing her family away. Every step of my healing process has been riddled with guilt, of course, because... Like, I have to choose. Am I living for my own life, or am I living to ensure my parents' survival? And the guilt comes from making the choice to live my own life. With the reassurance she had from hearing Inga's story, Lynn stuck to her decision. As time passed, things with her family started to get a little better. They'd call each other on their birthdays and chat about the weather. Then came the cheese. Out of nowhere, from my doorstep, there would be this box. And I would open up the box and it would be like this delicatessen from Madison, Wisconsin. With cheese from around the world. All these different kinds of cheese. Like, sometimes there would be a note included, and sometimes they're like, to, colon, Lynn, from, colon, mom and dad. It wasn't much, but it was something. Something other than manipulation and selfishness and pain and secrets. It was what Lynn had been craving for a long time, her parents acting like parents, showing her that they cared about her, that they wanted her in their lives, even in this small, weird way. And then it was Thanksgiving, and I called them, and we had a good conversation on the phone. And then a week later, a coffee cake arrived. And I was like, oh, coffee cake. That feels like resolution to me. (laughs) Soon after that, Lynn met the love of her life and got married. She brought her new husband home to New York to meet her family. And they were happy for her. They celebrated Nothing had been resolved, the old problems were still there. But there was something new in the family, something that wasn't just about the past. That's really when a lot of the, when we really moved forward together as a family. Because there is this, I'm going to call like hope for the future now that I'm getting married. And the idea is that we can move on. A lot has changed for Lynn since then. Her mother passed away last year, and she and her father now carry on a distant but healthy relationship from opposite sides of the country. Lynn and her husband are getting ready to adopt a baby. She says she hopes that her dad will get a chance to know her child like Inga's parents knew her children. But Lynn is determined not to let the Holocaust define her child's life the way it defined hers. It won't hover like a black cloud that never goes away, but it won't be a secret either. It'll just be part of the story of the family. For Vox Tablet... I'm Mark Betancourt. Mark Betancourt is a writer. He's based in Washington, D.C. For more stories like this one, you can visit our archive at tabletmag.com. Just go to the Vox Tablet page. 
Just to give you a taste, we've got a story about loser Twersky adjusting to life outside the ultra-Orthodox fold in which he grew up. We've got another one, a really great story, about the children of refuseniks who go back to Russia as journalists. Give those a listen and share them and let us know what you think about them. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Sarah Ivory. We thank you, as ever, for joining us. We hope you'll do so again next time. <laughs>